Blog Talk Radio. Tonight we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. And we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web app com. Is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine A football memorabilia historian Specializing in pre-World War II items In particular Red Grange And also Seattle Seahawk items In particular Steve Largis He hails from Portland, Oregon <laughs> Mr. Joe Squire, welcome to the show this evening. Uh, Captain, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Got a great show lined up. I'm excited. Should be very interesting with some uh, very, very pertinent news. But before we get into that, mm-hmm. we're going to continue our, our discussion of Bowman football sets. And tonight, we're going to spend a little time on the 51 set, but spend most of our time on the 52 set. So I'm going to hand yeah. off to you. Let's do a little quick uh, review on the 51s and then get into the bread and butter of the 52 Bowmans. And, and I'll admit, the 52 set is the more popular, obviously, but I love the 51 set. It is beautiful. The logos. Uh, you know, the colorization got got some amazing cards, you know, and the Norm Van Brocklin's rookie card. Uh, it, it's got a really nice follow-up, you know, Bulldog Turner. Just amazing color, great logos. It, 51 Bowman is one of my favorites, uh, but it do, just simply doesn't get the attention that the other Bowmans do because uh, it just doesn't have the star power. I mean, it's got, you know, Tom Landry. You know, a lot of the rookie cards were in, you know, the 50 Bowman because uh, it was the first Bowman set, so they, they, they kind of caught up. Um, it, it, it's a shame, but it's it's just a beautiful set. They're, 
you know they're you know they're uh, they, they they're larger. The the fifty Bowman was square. These are two and a sixteenth by three and an eighth. The uh, the fifty two Bowman are two and a sixteenth by or excuse me, the largest two and a half by three and eight. So it, it's a little bit larger, you know, by uh by about you know what would it be fifteen sixteenths, about half an inch, you know, on the on the vertical side, but. Mm-hmm. Just, it, it's a great set, and it is just—it's it, a shame it doesn't get, you know, the, you know the notoriety that others do. But I get it, and you know, and then here you and I are, you know, you know, you know, continuing that by, like, briefly skimming over the fifty-one, which is a beautiful set, and then talking about the fifty-two. But it is what it is, you know. Well, the fifty-one set, in my opinion especially when uh, I was putting it together, it seemed to be much easier to put together than either the uh-huh. 50 or the the 52 set. The 52 set was nasty for me because uh, oh. I only did the small at first, and then it took me quite a while to find, obviously, the last card, and I basically just got a filler card for my uh, Lancer there, number 144. But um, Bowman Large is said numerous yeah. times on the show i've started and stopped Indeed. numerous times again selling off the last uh set uh, i was trying to put together right before i moved uh down here so uh again right now i decided for 52 bowman large i'm just going to pick up a couple packer cards for type purposes and that's about it but again back to what you're no. saying i do agree uh 52 is a beautiful set. 51 is a nice set, but it's just not yep. – doesn't have that exciting star power like like sets from the 50s have. Yep. But the 144 cards, uh, you know, very similar to the 50 Bowman and the 52 Bowman, so likely laid out on a sheet the same way. Uh, you know, 12 teams, so, uh, you know – uh, you know, 12 NFL teams, you know, this is after, you know, we discussed in the, you know, the 50 Bowman, the merger of the AFC along with the NFL. So, uh, you know, you know, yeah, so li- likely four sheets of 36 like they did with the 50 Bowman, although I've never seen a 51 Bowman sheet. I have seen a 52 Bowman sheet, uh, a small, a partial one, but, uh, you know, missed out on it, but. Just not the not the star power, not, not the star power. Yeah, the only real Hall of Fame rookie card in there is the, uh, you know, the Norm Van Brocklin card number four. You know, which is just you know beautiful. But yeah, it is what it is. It's uh, you know, it's uh, I love it. Uh, I, it, I it, I'm I'm the odd man out. I the 51 and the 53 Bowman set are to me the nicest sets. I I love them all. The Bowmans are amazing, except for the. 54. It starts to get a little lazy and ugly in 54 and 55, but just good-looking sets. Shame they don't get the, the notoriety no. that uh, others do. You know, I, I really like it. it you no, start right. to see it more from the squares in 1950 to a little more vertical in 51, and then in 52 they settle in with their standard card size. Now, refresh my memory again. You just have like a partial cut of 51 and 52. I forgot what you had uh, no, mentioned I said, before. I, I've never seen. Uh, I have a the full. Oh, you never. Uh, okay. I have all four sheets of 1950. I've never seen an okay. uncut sheet of 51, but it's the same number of cards okay. as the 50 and 52. 
the 52 sheet right. that I've seen has been tracked with the same layout as the 52 or as, as the 50 or the, uh, the 50, excuse me, which is card one through 36. So, which is where you get the you know divided by nine because it was four rows of nine. So you get that you know right. divided by okay. nine plus one. So you get you know nine, eighteen, twenty-seven, thirty-six, and your right border. You know if you're looking at it from the back. So which which is why those divisible by nine cards are corners and the edges, which makes them tough. But uh, you know four four sheets of thirty-six likely, and uh, you know and uh, there, there's your divisible by nine formula. It's kind of kind of fun. Uh, divisible by nine plus one is what it's what it is. So. Okay. Now, again, uh, we've talked about this in the past. Why do we think Bowman went to a small in a large version of those cards? And the speculation we had was, and I'll, I'll hand it off to you first, and then I'll throw in my, yeah. my theory, too. Yeah. It's slightly smaller, like I said, about in 51, slightly smaller, about half inch um, in 51. And in 52, they continued with that, you know, slightly smaller size, two and a two and a sixteenth by three and an eighth. Uh, the, the the 52 small came first, football season, and then baseball rolls around the 52 tops. And you know, this is back when there were you know the two sheriffs in town, Bowman and Tops. 52 tops baseball came out, and they came out with standard sizes. So Bowman had the small set out. And, uh, and then, you know, and they were running with it. And then a little while later, the, you know, the 52 tops baseball set came out and they were standard sizes. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine there was some market research, research that showed kids loved the larger baseball card, you know, larger cards a little bit more. So Bowman was forced to uh, bump, uh, you know, bump it and uh, come out with the 52 large. Uh, so, which is why the 52 large is a lot more rare. They ran half the season with 52 small before they pumped out the 52 large. And then in 53 going, you know, 54, 55, Bowman just gave up and said the health and just went with the large size, you know, in sequence after that. But that's, uh, that's why it was just, you know, literally reactionary to 52 tops of baseball that came out after 52 Bowman small set came out. And, and again, it's interesting to see, that, like you said, the 52 Bowman Large, much more difficult to put together than the 52 Small. And again, I remember years ago putting the 52 Bowman Small set together. I pretty much, even though I had a tough time with the stars, I did see those cards at shows. I rarely would ever see a 52 Bowman Large card. And I want to say, not, not referring to my notes, but I would guesstimate it wasn't until the late 1980s uh, I started seeing them a little more, a uh, little more uh, in volume at the shows. But at the same time, I always said to myself, "Well, if I'm putting together the small set, what do I need the large set for?" And uh, several dealers mm-hmm. at the time said, "Oh, you should put it, try to put it together." And then again, 52 Bowman Large Lansford number 144 on a lot of oh, people's right. want was yep. and it's a super expensive card and you know it it just was not cost per, it was not cost effective for me and, to actively try to pursue that set and again i tried to put that stuff together four separate occasions got rid of it all four times and yep. i i'm still very much more content with my 52 small set knowing that in 53 i'm at the large 
right side yeah. card, and 53 Bowman was a relatively easy set, believe it or not, to put together for me. Yep. Uh, over and many years who's, ago. Who's Jim Lansford? I mean, he was a nobody player, but number 144 card is in the lower right section of the sheet. The right side tended to get uh, trimmed a little easier because the left border goes against the guide rail. Uh, lower right, so it's getting banged around. So the 144 card and the, and the number one card are the rare ones. Uh, they're, the, they're the tough ones. Um, but Jim Lansford is, I mean, it's, it's like when I talk about Zeke Bratkowski, you know, if you're an avid 57 tops collector, you know who Zeke Bratkowski, Bratkowski is. It's a, it's a bear of a card to get because of where he lays on the sheet, the lower right section of the second sheet. Uh, and, you know, and Jim Lansford is the same. I mean, just the fact that you threw that out, nobody knows who Jim Lansford is unless you collect that set. Right, right, right. But it, it's, a, the, it's, the Hall it's comical, to, it's comical to, to me to see, because, again, since I, put, I use, uh, I mean, I collect raw sets, I had no intention of, if, you know, people are saying, well, you know, you should really get this. If you put the set together for the 52 Bowman Large, you should really get your one your last card graded. And I said, for what? It's going to cost even more money. And I don't see how you're going to really be able to touch up that kind of card because it was, I never really saw it in good condition. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. the, the, the handful of times I can count on one hand I actually saw the card in person, it was at best GBG because of, like you said, where it's located on the sheet and how it got cut. Simple. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. So four Hall of Fame rookie cards, and a lot of a lot of what drives the price and popularity of these is the Hall of Fame rookie cards. There are four Hall of Fame mm-hmm. rookie cards in the 51 set. Number four, Norm Van Brocklin, uh, Oregon, U, U of O Duck, go Ducks. Uh, number card number 21, Arnie Weinmeister. Number card number mm-hmm. 51, Ed Sprinkle, and card number 51, M Tunnell. And then, and then you roll over to 52, and it is. The, there are two sets uh, that are that have the most Hall of Fame rookie cards in them, and that is the '52 tops and the '84 and the '84 tops. I think '48 Leaf is right up there, mm-hmm. uh, but '52 or excuse me, '52 Bowman and '84 tops, and um, they are both yep. just yep. chocked with star power. Frank in, in the '52 Bowman set, Frank Gifford, Gino Marchetti, Hugh McElhaney, you know, R.I.P. Sorry. Art Donovan, Wayne Milner, Les Richter, Andy Robustelli, Bobby Dillon, recent addition, Joe Steidahar, Ollie Matson, and Jack Christensen. Uh, just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, I beg your pardon, Yale Larry, wraps up card number 140 in the bottom row. Uh, I, I, I want to say that's 12 or 14, but just absolutely chocked full of Hall of Fame power. So that, uh, that really pushes the prices up on 52 Bowman. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's just, to me, those two sets never made a lot of sense to me. And, again, the the um, uh, understanding why 52 large is more money than the 52 small, I just could not see what the value of it was trying to put that set together when I had the 52 small already. And I, and I got up. I need uh, upgrades in my 52 small set anyways. I just assumed upgrade than worrying about having a uh, lesser, lesser grade large set. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's what it is. Always, in it's the, always uh, interesting. And it was always, uh, to me, uh, 
challenging to say the least to start and stop that set so many different times that I did and uh I'm content now not worrying that uh I'm not putting it together. <laughs> but anyways we I have our guest is uh is here. I'd like to introduce him, get started with that section of our show. I'd like to introduce our special guest. He has an incredible collection of Jim Thorpe cards and memorabilia items. He was last on our show back in May of 2019. He was our super collector in Gridiron Greats Magazine in issue 67. He hails from Oklahoma. I'd like to welcome to the show our good friend, Mr. Michael Driscoll. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Captain and Joe, my Thorpe brother, for inviting me on the show. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I uh, I will wear that with honor, being a Thor brother for you, my man. <laughs> and Mike, thanks, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to come back on. And I'm going to lead off by, uh, if you could refresh our audience's memory, what made you start collecting uh, Jim Thorpe and uh, his different cards and memorabilia? You know, it all started back when I was a young kid living on a farm of 160 acres and it was alongside a 280 acre property my grandparents owned so I grew up uh, hunting and fishing a lot my dad was a history and reading teacher and also a collector of everything and one day he brought home Jim Thorpe Indian athlete by Guernsey Van Riper and told me who Thorpe was and that Thorpe grew up about 30 miles west of our farm, and he could have actually even walked on our land while coon hunting as a boy my age, as it was common to travel those kind of distances while coon hunting. So I read the book, and I became Thorpe in my make-believe world as a child when I was hunting and fishing. We eventually had to move to uh, town, and... That's when I discovered there were football, baseball, and basketball cards. And so I collected that until high school when other interests started dominating my life. Fast forward to the early 2000s, I started getting the sports collecting bug again and settled on collecting Thorpe. I I started with collecting cards, and it acquired some nice ones like a PSA 7 and 8 of the Sport Kings. And a 1922 Z nut, a PSA 8 1955 All American, and a 1916 PSA 3 Famous and Bar. But I quickly found out that Thorpe didn't have many original cards, and the ones that surfaced were real hard to acquire. So that's when I started shifting my focus to photos and postcards and other types of memorabilia. It, It was a rewarding move for me for sure. That's a great story. Totally agree. There's not much out there, that, you know, for, for Thorpe as far as mainstream cards, and it's just no. uh, by the time 33SK came around, you know, Jim Thorpe was you know, was no longer the president of the NFL. He was, you know, in movies and digging mm-hmm. ditches, unfortunately. Uh, and, and 2012, 10 years ago, on the 100-year anniversary of the 1912 Olympics, I started digging into uh, how Jim Thorpe did in the decathlon. And then I started comparing it 
to modern day athletes. And, and, you know, I I started noticing it was almost 50 years before people broke Jim Thorpe's records from 1912. (laughs) That's equipment and training, et cetera. Yes. Before that, 10 years ago, you know, in 2012, I had no idea, you know, to me, Jim Thorpe won the Olympics, you know, the, the, the pentathlon and the decathlon. And until I started doing that research, I didn't know that, that it was a dual gold medal award. And I remember digging into why, and I'd, I'd kind of heard he had his, his medal strip, but recently why we wanted to have you on the show was the uh, IOC recently announced that uh, the that Jim Thorpe was being reinstated as the sole and on top of the heat winner of the uh, the cap on a pen tap on the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Talk to us about how that happened and what the journey was like for that. Oh my gosh, you know, Polly ought to uh, have some thank yous to the 110 year struggle. Immediately in 1913, the New York mayor started a petition asking the AAU to reinstate the uh, uh, Thorpe as an amateur because the feeling throughout America at the time was since he made a clean confession and truly believed he was innocent, that he should be shown some mercy. However, James Sullivan, who was the head of the AAU, was also on the school board of of New York public schools. And so politically, Titian didn't go far. Then you have Gus Welch, who was quarterback for Carlisle, and his roommate, Thorpe's roommate, and also his best man at his wedding, got an investigation started almost immediately that revealed things that uh, we might not have ever known that could have helped this later on you also had back then charlie paddock who in 1920 was the 100 400 relay olympic champion and if anybody remembers chariots of fire he was involved in that 100 meter final and placed fifth so that's who we're talking about he managed several newspapers at the time and he wrote several articles in support of jim thorpe which pointed out that the rules illegality of the ruling by the AAU should have prevented him from being stripped of his medals and honors. At the time, everybody knew the rules, and eventually those rules got lost and faded to memory until later on when uh, Florence Ridland, which is Robert Wheeler's wife, found a set of the rules in the Library of Congress, which again, proved that everything was done illegal. Then we go to modern day, a guy by the name of Tex Brown in 1970 started uh, working with Grace Thorpe and her and the Thorpe family mm-hmm. to have... His daughter. Yes, to have uh, the uh, medals and, and honors restored. However, he uh, died in 1984, so uh, about the time things were getting going, you know, in 83, he finally got um, some replica of his awards. In 72, he was reinstated. 
Then uh, Tom Benji, who's a Carlisle historian, has routinely been uh, publicly and written articles on his behalf. Nidra Darling, who started the Bride Pass Strong, which has really uh, snowballed this into what happened a couple days ago. Then Billy Mills, who was Olympic champion at the Munich Olympics in the 10,000 meters, his fame has helped give the fight a boost. Even in 2019, New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Halen, who's a Native American, introduced legislation calling on the IOC to correct the results. Of course, you have Grace Thorpe and, and other family members, probably more than anybody, Robert Wheeler and his wife, Florence Ridlon, since 1975, has uh, been fighting this fight. And without their undying work, this final leg might have never happened. They kept it in the forefront since 1975. And to fully understand and appreciate what happened and the full scope of the tragic misjustice then key players and their roles and the basic tendencies in relation to their jobs and how they were all connected has to be talked about. It is a multifaceted situation with several key people involved. And my intention is not to disparage Warner or Sullivan, uh, James Sullivan or Pop Warner, Glenn Warner. Their contributions to their respective fields are undeniable. Modern-day football was brought into uh, play by Glenn Warner. So his football contributions contributions are undeniable. And, of course, Hmm. we can look back, and it's easy for us to uh, hang our hat on things that we know now. And these guys aren't alive to take up for themselves, so I'll just stick to the known facts. And I believe most will conclude that they did things for reason at the time and perhaps not the right reason. Unfortunately, it's taken 110 years to undo what they did then. So the the key players and organizations at the time was reporter Roy Johnson, who broke the story. And Thorpe never did. And he admitted he never did hold any ill feeling towards Roy Johnson, that he was a reporter and he was just doing his job. You had James Sullivan. So he's the head of the AAU, and he's also the advertising editorial and sales manager for A.G. Spalding. He bolstered his Spalding, his and Spalding's bottom line by denying any records that were set if the athlete was not using spalding equipment or shoes. So say a 100-meter record was broken, he asked the athlete, were you wearing spalding shoes? And if the guy said no, and this happened, then he denied the record because he was not wearing (laughs) spalding shoes. A discus set a world record. And that he did not use a spalding discus, therefore he denied the record. And this forced, I did not know that. Yes, he, he, this forced athletes at the time to buy spalding equipment. 
Wait, he got a commission off of Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you're talking about a man who, if he was alive today, he he it'd be like one man as head of Sports Illustrated, Nike, ESPN, NCAA, and the U.S. Olympic Committee. One man was running all this. He ruled the AAU amateurs with a a uh, ironclad fist. He even uh, um, took away the amateur status of a nephew of his because he played in a non-sanctioned AAU basketball tournament. Incredible. So, wow. He also operated the American Olympic Committee without a constitution or procedural rules. So basically he could make up the rules as he went. It's kind Why of was he allowed to do that? sketchy. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It, it's kind of sketchy that immediately after his death, his business papers were destroyed. <laughs> so they're lost wow. of time. So nobody will ever know what his business papers look like. Then you had, uh, during that time, James Conley was uh, writing articles. He was the first American to win gold in the modern Olympics. He testified that Solomon used a number of ways to compensate athletes without paying them, the very thing that he's accusing Thorpe of, getting compensation. One way was to award gold watches to winners. And these athletes called them stock watches because the athletes would return them to the stores where the watches would be put back in stock, while the athlete would be reimbursed with cash. And there's even a known instance where Thorpe received one, but uh, it's reported that he gave it to a girl on a girl on campus. Also, this is they said that uh, <laughs> Sullivan and the AAU promoters used as a way of gaining control of American athletes, amateurs, by paying them extra expenses, then bribed them to be exposed as a professional if they didn't attend the events he wanted them to attend. And everybody knew at the time that he was helping Howard Drew, who was the world record sprinter at the time, by allowing him to run for free and helping him get get to uh, track meets because he was so poor and he didn't have anybody to help him. That's disgusting. So that my, my, a lot of sketchy things with in, investigating this. As you're investigating this, it's just got to make you mad. I mean, how many? Oh, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, is this is is this a, a a is this something that was racist? Is this towards because he didn't like Native Americans, or did this happen to a lot of other people? It sounds like you know if they're threatening people to not compete at the events they want to. It was just it was all over the place. But stripping some yeah, of the medals a little I'll beyond. I'll touch on that in a minute. Uh, another key player was Pop Warner, who hunted with Thorpe extensively and even his own records indicated when some players would leave to play baseball in the summer and he would brag openly about his players doing well in summer ball. He ended up dropping baseball at Carlisle in 1910 because of 
summer professionalism. Yep. So he knew his athletes were doing it. And I don't know if y'all have ever hunted with anybody, but your your buddy you talk about with ev- everything. So oh, yeah. it's hard to imagine that uh, that summer ball did not ever come up in conversation when they were out on hunting trips. But I digress on that. That you know nothing. That's not proven. It's just hard for me to believe that that yep. didn't happen. He. It's also known that uh, Warner bet on his own games all the time, and he'd bribe his players at halftime if they were losing, as he had bet on Carlisle to win. So something, it, players said, "Hey, he'd, he'd tell them for everybody and some spending money if y'all go out and uh, kick their butts second half and win." He'd set out, he'd put out false injury reports just to alter the betting odds. So he's not completely mm. clean, and all these things kind of tend to make people think: Were these guys honest in what they were taught, well, saying about not knowing about Thorpe? I, I hate to interrupt you again, but I mean, you and I on a previous show talked about. I personally don't like Thorpe, or excuse me, uh, you know, Pop Warner. It's right. because Pop Warner sold Thorpe down the river. He didn't defend him when the IOC started investigating. I mean, a, a man of, of Pop Warner's stature could have right. could have been the person whose voice that stood up and, you know, maybe gave them pause to, of stripping these medals away from a Native American, a shy one like Thorpe. I don't know. And well, Pop that, Warner gets a lot of accolades. He's held in very high standards. Sure. I've, I've never found him to be a very honest, good man. And, Hearing more of this just reinforces that. You know, that's the very reason Gus Welch uh, yeah. called for a government investigation into uh, the administration of Pop Warner at Carlisle because he was mad that they did not defend Thorpe. And he knew, he said he knew that they knew. So during that investigation, Welch testified that Warner would scalp 50 to 75 tickets per game that were intended to go to patrons and pocket it. Yeah. And, and players witnessed the scalping. Welch said under oath, I regard him as a great coach but being a dishonest person. He is a man with no principles. This is Gus Welch's own quarterback. Wow. And indeed. I didn't know that. And indeed. Yeah. Indeed, wow. an investigation at the school revealed that between 1907 and 1913, Warner, as president of his own athletic association, had netted $7 million in today's value. In 1908, Warner supposedly handed out $9,233 in payments and loans to his athletes, including $500 to Thor. Now, Warner, under oath, denied that he had paid his players, yet players in the investigation said they were paid for touchdowns, tackles, interceptions, and et cetera. Warner, Warner did admit he played, paid for players to get a $25 suit, $25 overcoat, and a souvenir, and and people say that that souvenir was a gold watch and gold fob. <clears throat> the report 
did say that money from the athletic association was spent on building and refurbishing five buildings, including a new two-story home for Warner to live in. And he paid himself $4,000 a year and invested the, some of the funds into railroad stock. So it's ironic that the American Olympic Committee wrote in their report to the IOC, quote, Warner as a man is a man whose reputation is of the highest and whose accuracy of statement has never been doubted, end quote. Oh, jeez. Uh, the more, the more mind, you the more disgusting yeah. this is. Keep in mind that Thorpe was an orphan at this time and had no lawyers, money, advisors, or mentors yep. other than Warner who had been looking out for him for six years. Yep. You also had Moses Friedman, who's the uh, uh, superintendent of, of Carlisle School. He was indicted for embezzling money in 1911 before the Olympics for uh, double billing train tickets for the students and, and carrying 186 phantom students on enrollment books, which led to $32,000 in government overpay. So... Most people back then thought he was lying because he was stealing. So how can you take his word that he didn't know that Thorpe was playing baseball? So Sullivan, Warner, and Friedman, the the top three guys, were all doing less than honest things, yet the three together are the ones who sunk Thorpe. How ironic. (laughs) Yeah. Not ironic. Damn sad. Damn, that, that's even worse. I mean, I always imagine this came down, and, you know, IOC wasn't happy with Thorpe. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people play ball. This is, you know, this is, I don't know, it's, it, you know, yeah, not, I, not to say everybody everybody in college football cheats a little bit, but, I mean, this is, you know, right up there. Every, everybody played a little bit of, you know, college ball, you know, et cetera. It's just, mm-hmm. it seemed like Thorpe was kind of, you know, picked out because he was Native American. And I just, uh, and even worse than Pop Warner letting him, you know, get, you know, sailed down the river without defending him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Warner did that because, because of football, because of him moving away from that. I don't know. Man, it's so it's sad. Mo- For the modern day, Avery Brundage, he was the American Olympic committee president from 28 to 53, and the IOC president from 52 to 72. And any attempts from friends or family made ironclad rejection, always been charged. With Thorpe out of the way, he won three all-around championships for the U.S. and later admitted that it opened up opportunities for his construction business. So he categorically dismissed all attempts by Grace Thorpe and family and Robert Wheeler and others to get Thorpe reinstated. Not until his forced retirement in 72 after his insensitive posture and remarks to the killings of the Israeli athletes of Munich, you're old enough to remember that, did he start getting, did Thorpe start getting any justice? Because the following year, after he retired, the new president reinstated Thorpe's amateur status. And in 82, Wheeler's life, that's when Wheeler's wife found the official rule book. 
Yeah. At the Library of Congress. And once again, Rule 13 proved that what was done was not only unfair but illegal. So in October 82, IOC voted to restore the honors, but only as co-champions. So what is Rule 13? Why only as co-champion? Apologize. Do what? Why only as as co-champion then? Because they were not going to relegate those who they they had already replaced as champions. It was their justification. And Mike, I'm curious, where, uh, to, to cut in here, where are Thorpe's actual two strip gold medals from the, the 1912 Olympics? Do you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. Um, they did, uh, the the IOC did crate them all up, and they were housed at the IOC headquarters in Switzerland for some time. Then all of them disappeared until they did find the bust of the King of Sweden. It was discovered in a in one of their warehouses, and it now resides in a museum. But his medals and Viking ships have never surfaced. So to me, it's either they reside in a private collection somewhere that no one's ever going to reveal or remember two world wars happened in Europe and oh. entire cities were destroyed. So they could, they could easily have been lost forever. I'm, I'm kind of in the thought that, uh, nobody will ever know. Interesting. Um, um, who, who was it on a VFC? I think it was, yeah, it was you. I'm looking at the post now who said, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, they were taken from Thorpe, either at his residence or at Warner's residence. But somehow or another, uh, Warner ended up with them, either, you know, going to Thorpe's house or, you know, or gathering up in his own residence and returned yes. to Sweden. So yes. the, 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 the line is that you believe is they were returned to Sweden. By then, Sweden had already struck two new ones, you know, for the you know for the second place person. But second place person refused to them. Correct? No, they were going to receive those actual medals, and but they refused to accept okay. them. I mean, they were. They had set up a uh, a, a day to uh, present them and everything, and, and the runner-ups refused, said, we're not coming, we're, we're not going to take them. He beat us fair and square. Yeah, man, good for them, cause it, absolutely. So but. Rule 13, which was quoted in the, Uni- in the U.S. and international papers at the time, I've got um, – actual newspaper articles. It's objections to the qualifications of a competitor Mm. must be made in writing to the Swedish Olympic Committee before the lapse of 30 days from the distribution of prizes. So July 22nd was the distribution of prizes. August 22nd, time was up. And this all broke on January 22nd, five months too late. The American press published many reminders from Swedish officials that the challenge to Jim's win and awards 
had come too late. Not only that, but a provision in the 1912 rules for a court of appeals that specifically dealt not with the challenges to the outcome of any event, but with interpretation and application of rules governing the games. Such protests had to be made within one hour of the event in question. Otherwise, the judge's decision was final. They were, Sweden was trying to head Sullivan off at the pass, but Sullivan and AAU disregarded everything and Sullivan was direct and Vince, therefore he preemptively stripped Jim of his amateur status. So what that's saying is that the placings had to be challenged within one hour. And hmm. but the eligibility of the person had to be within thirty days and neither was followed. Yeah. Seven months I think you said you mentioned. Hmm. Yeah. Uh American newspapers condemned the ruling since Thorpe had received very little money, then how was it that Brickley from Harvard and Flynn of Yale during the recent football season could make more money from one article they wrote for the papers than Thorpe made in an entire season if they both retained their amateur status? And in Sweden, a lot of support for the Nordic Sport Life magazine wrote, there is growing anger to what is now an international scandal. Does anyone anywhere believe that the AAU and others involved didn't know about Thorpe's crime before the games? Swedish athletes went on record that they disapproved and felt that the rules were too strict in America and that they even were reimbursed financially for time lost from work for their training. And reports abroad that Thorpe would get to keep the prizes he won as the Swedish Olympic officials had declared in a meeting that the prizes could not be taken from Thorpe since the Olympic rules expressly stated that all trophies shall remain the permanent property of the victor unless charges are preferred against an individual within 30 days after the prizes have been awarded. So there was a lot of support at the time. But what Mike, were the we gotta uh, move, we, okay? We got to move forward here because we're we're running out of time. So I got to bring up a, an incredible story that uh, you've echoed here tonight. It's just truly amazing to me and and to our listeners at the same time, hearing what really happened with it. So. Yep. Can you summarize, like, in two minutes or less, and then we'll go into our, just one more quick question because we've almost got 12 minutes left of the show. Summarize okay. in two minutes or less what what is actually the final outcome of everything that has happened here. Well, you know, the timeline of it from beginning to end happened in 10 days. From the time the story okay. broke, to the time he signed with the New York uh, Giants baseball team. So Hmm. 10 days, he was tried, he was accused, tried, convicted, and stripped of Olympic glory. In the court of the the, the press, yeah. In the court of Sullivan and Warner and Friedman, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well. It's unbelievable. It's uh, 
interesting that Carlisle's Athletic Association board members included Moses Friedman and Sullivan, so they served on Warner's business enterprise, which made them in business together. That very business was based in part of what? Jim Thorpe's amateur status. So there's hardly anybody back then that did not believe there was something in the woodpile and that they were trying to hide something. The whole thing makes me, makes me sad. And, and, and quite frankly, it, it, it depresses me that this went on and it was, it was so such an, a badly kept secret and everybody just let one of the greatest athletes of our time, you know, just get sent down the river. Like I said, just think about what else Fork could have accomplished with a little yeah. bit more support. And I think that was he was going to go back to Carlisle and play, and he wanted to continue to go some track meets. And, you know, he turned down a Pittsburgh Pirates uh, offer before he went back to Carlisle. And there's documentation that he turned down $55,000 to become exclusively a boxer because he was an accomplished boxer. And he turned all that down just to go back and play football for Carlisle as an amateur. So in his heart, but what's crazy is in his heart, and everybody who is in question here, other than Thorpe, had shady backgrounds, and Thorpe's the only one who did not, um, was not accused of being dishonest. And never spoke up about it, never complained, never, 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 never. begrudged. I mean, this guy died in poverty. I, I've shared that picture I have of him digging ditches in 1930. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the guy, he was robbed. He was robbed of, uh, we were robbed of one of the greatest athletes. I mean, just again, I just, I think about oh, yeah. what would have, uh, yeah, I mean, what he could have done. I don't know. It's it, just it's depressing. The man in the whole thing was Thorpe. You know, he, he, uh, whether Sullivan, Warner, and Friedman knew or not, they, they didn't fight enough for him in most people's opinion. He, he remained loyal to Warner his whole life. We've seen pictures of him with Warner in, in, uh, old age. Friedman was invited to his wedding and gave Ivan Miller away, who was also an orphan. And he held no ill feelings toward Roy Johnson, who broke the story. He stayed cordial to every Brundage. His only strongest words later in life was for Sullivan, in which he said, basically, they used me as a guinea pig to make up the rules. That was his strongest statement his whole life about the entire episode, publicly. A great, a gracious man, a gracious man who was wronged. And, yeah. Truly incredible. Truly incredible. Well, Mike, we're probably going to have to have you on a second second show because we are running <laughs> out of time. And I got to ask oh, you I've got, real quick. I've got more that I could speak about, you know, if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. All right. Why do I why right. do I do that? We're gonna we're gonna go off script. You got five minutes to summarize, and then totally we'll be down to two minutes for the show, and and then just finish up from there. Oh. Okay. Go ahead. The captain just called, called an audible. I like it. 
But his little tidbit, you know, without any doubt in my mind, what happened a few days ago was 110 years too late. But most happy for the Thorpe family especially. You know, a lot of people involved, but this comes down to the Thorpe family getting justice. It doesn't matter about us collectors, about a... um, Anybody else who has bought, you know, kudos to them. But this comes down to the Thorpe family finally getting justice and can't be more than happy that that has happened for them. Hmm. That kind of sums it up for I'm curious what Thorpe never said anything about, uh, about Pop Warner. No, he stayed, uh, you know, understand he was he was an orphan, and during his formulative years, Warner was that, that father figure who uh, took the place of his parents who passed away. And he he remained extremely loyal to Warner no matter what. Did Never anyone ever tell Thorpe, like, by no, the way, not, that guy. Even even his children have stated that uh, before they passed away that he never said anything bad about Warner and that he did not bring up the topic of his uh, of what happened back then. Hmm. So he just, you know, now, it was deeply rooted, you know, there's a time that he told uh, Chief Myers, who he played with uh, in their room late at night, you know, that uh, that he was, you know, he was even crying about it, that uh, those were hits, should have been his awards, and that he won them fair and square, and uh, that they should should not have been taken from him. So in private moments, I'm sure there were some Sometimes, but publicly, he never disparaged anybody. What a gentle, gentle giant, you know. I don't know. Yes, and you know that's what a lot of uh, his teachers at Carlisle described him as—as as a gentle giant and guileless. They never saw him want to get revenge on anybody. Wow, makes me, still makes me angry. Even oh, if, yeah. Even if he didn't want to do it, it seems like somebody could have, you know, somebody could have stepped up for him. Oh, well. Oh, well. Like I said, I'll admit, I, Bob Warner, to me, is the one person who had the power to step in on this and uh, yes. didn't. I think, is that how you feel as well? I, I do. I, I, I believe that. Um, yeah, I know he took care of Thorpe for many years, but still yet that one time that he really needed him the most, he he didn't uh, fight for him. And, of course, if it would have been found out that Warner and, and Sullivan knew for sure that he had played, that would have ruined their careers. And so it was uh, hastily uh, taken care of. And even uh, all involved, Clancy, who was uh, the coach down there, and Friedman and Warner and Thorpe, 
they all denied it initially until concrete evidence came out. Then Clancy went to the papers and started disparaging Thorpe as being yellow and had a yellow streak in him and a drunk and troublemaker. And the other three started gathering the things they needed to to cover their rear. Uh, a truly uh, amazing oh, wow. story. It's just, it's just a lot to digest, and it's just, it's just amazing to hear one of the greatest athletes of all time have to go through that. It's just sad. It really is. Sad. It's yeah. really. Sad. I mean, in ten days, what what happens in ten days? You know. Yep. Yep. Everything. It was fine, sealed, and delivered like they knew exactly what they had to do if this ever came out, and they put it in motion. Somebody was very mad at him. Yep, I agree. All right, I so got interesting. to step in. Hard close here because we're down to two minutes. Mike, we got to have, okay. have you on for a second half of the show to talk about all that great stuff you picked up since the last time we talked to you. But uh, okay. I want to thank you for being <laughs> on, and you, you, you are the expert on what happened. And you are the expert on uh, his memorabilia, photos, cards, and the like. Truly, uh, you have an amazing collection and an amazing uh, knowledge of what really happened. And I want to thank you for being on tonight. And uh, we'll be back soon. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you, guys. Mike, I can't can't thank you enough for being on the show. At the top of the hour, you sang my fellow... Forb collector. It was such an homage to me. I appreciate it, man. I'm not, yeah, I'm honored to be in that company. There's still a few of us All out right. there. All right. We're down to... Thank you. Down to, Thank you, down Mike. To one minute, Joe. Quick 30-second uh, uh, wrap-up here. What'd you pick up on tonight's show? And it's tough to... I'm angry. Tough. I'm angry angry at what what could have been if Thorpe was allowed to thrive. I'm angry that an innocent man was sold down the river by the people closest to him that he trusted. Just that there's a lot of stuff I didn't know there, and it's a lot to unpack. It's just sad. Yeah. It's sad. It's just a sad story. And at least, you know, for lack of a better way of explaining, it got resolved 110 years later, which really isn't acceptable one way or the other. Hey, we're out of time. Thanks for listening. If you're not a subscriber to Good Iron Grapes Magazine, what are you waiting for? Check out our website, goodirongrapesmagazine.com. We'll see you next week with another show.